Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we can be here today, that we can sit in the light of your word, and it is in the light of your word that the psalmist said that we see light. For it is only when we subsume our thinking under your thinking that we let your word form the framework for our, all of our thinking in every area of life that we are able to properly understand your creation and relate to the elements within your creation and to live consistently in your creation with reality. For your thinking shaped defines and created things as they are, not as sinful man distorts them to be. Father, we pray as we study more on the doctrine of worship that you will challenge each of us and that we will be brought to a greater understanding of what it is that we do when we gather together as a body of believers and why it is important. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, where we're going to look at the first recorded hymn or psalm in the Bible. This is not when music began to be used. It is not probably the first hymn in history, but it is the first recorded hymn that we have in the Bible. Earlier I quoted from Psalm 96, 1 and 2, where the opening line says, sing to the Lord a new song. The idea of singing a new song means to sing a song, write a new song as a result of new or recent activities of God in history. Unfortunately, it has been taken and abused in the contemporary worship scene to think that this means that every generation needs to write new kinds of music consistent with whatever the music is that is popular among that generation. That is bad exegesis and poor application. The idea through Scripture, whenever you have this phraseology, sing a new song, and there is also the use of that phraseology in Revelation, it is because God continuously acts in people's lives in history. And so singing a hymn, singing a song, is a response to the fact that God has acted in history. It is sad, though, to reflect upon the fact that today we have little solid sound uh, 
appropriate music written uh, for church and churches in this vein. When I talk about music, so often uh, the issue that is raised is old versus new, and it's not really old versus new. That's not the issue. It's not a matter of time arrogance, which is how many people want to look at it. It is a matter of content and uh, quality in the music. And as I've stated before, that just doesn't happen today. And we need to challenge Christians who are capable and who are talented and who have the skills at both writing lyrics and writing music to elevate their standards to those that we have seen exhibited in uh, past eras of church history when there was a deeper and richer understanding of how the doctrines of Scripture impacted both the words and the music that was sung sung in the church. Several weeks ago, we began the study of the doctrine of worship as it is revealed in Scripture. I began with a, a definition of the term and focused on the key words, the key ideas which have to do with submission to God and service, submission to God and service. And then we put a definition up on the screen that has three basic parts. I'll review for you again this morning. First of all, to submit or to subordinate my opinions, preferences, thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotions, relationships, attitudes, actions, time, priorities, to the authority of God's Word. I don't think I've left anything out. reason I haven't is because God is the Creator, has something to say about every dimension of His creation. He has something to say about how we should think and the way we should think, how we should live, our social institutions, our which of course would involve government and political institutions as well as economic institutions, has something to say about relationships, has something to say about how we look at life and interpret and understand the details of life. God in His Word addresses every aspect of His creation so that as we let our thinking become saturated with the Word of God and under the ministry of the Spirit of God, then we are able to think within a divine viewpoint framework about everything in life. That is core to worship. It begins with the individual's submission of his will to God's will. Otherwise, what we have is man seeking to uh, define creation or to sit in judgment over God in a way that, that uh, put, makes God function as a creature and the creature as the creator. So the focal point of worship starts with the individual, but as we'll see, as we're never viewed in Scripture as simply isolated islands of existence. We are a body. In the Old Testament, there was the corporate body of Israel. In the New Testament, there is the corporate body of the church. And the corporate body in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is to come together on a regular basis to express their uh, corporate submission to God and to remember what God has done to reflect upon what that means in the life of the corporate body. I'm trying very hard to avoid the very popular phrase today of community. That just, you know, sort of drips with a lot of postmodern overtones today. 
but it is that corporate body, that corporate relationship that we have that is embedded in the fact that we are all in Christ. We are members of his body, 1 Corinthians says. We are also members of one another. So there, it's not this isolationist, atomistic view that uh, sometimes we see in uh, Christian history among Christians that sort of a go-it-alone mentality the body of Christ is a corporate entity where we are members of one another and there is a corporate dimension to worship that is very important. We see that worship is a complex idea that involves a number of different aspects. You can't just reduce it to singing, to praise, to prayer, to any one, one area. It is a complex idea involving a number of aspects from private prayer or individual worship to public expressions of thanks and the singing of hymns which reinforce and reflect upon God, His person, and works. And it also includes bringing sacrifices and gifts uh, to the extent of personal Christian service, which is viewed as a sacrifice in terms of the basic definition that we have of sacrifice, which means that it is an act whereby uh, people give up something valued for the sake of something else that is regarded as more important or worthy. That doesn't mean that at the time you have a martyr complex about what you're giving up. It just means that as you grow and mature as believers, you often will come to, to understand a higher scale of values, and you will realize that more and more choices involve uh, substituting the excellent for that which is good, that it has a higher priority, higher significance, and is more important to your spiritual life and spiritual growth. And so in the process of that spiritual growth, it often seems that we go from stage to stage in somewhat of a natural flow. We're not really conscious that, hey, I'm deciding to give these things up for God. But in essence, that's what we end up doing. You look back over your life and you realize that there are many things perhaps that you have done, that you've participated in, that you've been involved in that were very meaningful and important to you. But as you matured, you realize that there were things that were, that were more important. That is part of our individual aspect of worship. And then the third element, which is what we're beginning to focus on in our historical study and flow of worship in the Old Testament is that worship can be both individual, as we saw with Abraham at Mount Moriah, where he's taking Isaac to worship by sacrificing Isaac to the acts of gratitude expressed by Abraham's servant when he worships God for leading him to the woman who is to be Isaac's wife. Worship can be both individual and corporate. We don't see corporate worship in Genesis. The first time we truly see a development of corporate worship is in the book of Exodus. So, uh, and the final line, we may sometimes be emotionally stimulated by worship, but that, that is, that emotional stimulation should not be confused with worship. It is simply a byproduct of worship. And sometimes, because we are joyful over certain circumstances, we then express that joyfully or in celebration through singing. And that is what we see in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 15. The third thing I pointed out 
in our study by way of review is that there are these two broad aspects of worship, corporate and individual. And I find today a lot of people don't understand the importance of corporate, corporate worship. We also saw some examples from the Old Testament, including appropriate and proper examples of worship, but also that there's wrong worship. Worship is not determined by our own subjective understanding of worship, what makes us feel like we worship or to make us think that we have done something that is, should be accepted by God as worship, but God has an objective standard. Cain was rejected. Uh, Nadab and Abihu were rejected by God. In the New Testament, we'll study that Jesus said, those who come to God and worship must worship him by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. That implies that there is true worship and there is false worship. And then and we come to the fifth point in the study that uh, is a focus on the development of corporate worship. And we see this beginning at in Exodus. The first hymn that we have in the Bible is Exodus chapter 15. The first song of praise is a song of Moses written in response to God's deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea. That God defeated the mightiest army on the face of the earth at that time, the army of the Egyptians under the Pharaoh, and that he completely wiped out uh, all of their military in one swift action as he brought the waters of the Red Sea back together to drown and to destroy them. Now, as we go through Exodus, we'll see that there's two different aspects to worship developed in Exodus. One is the ritual aspect, and we'll get into that a little later on, but this is very well defined. God reveals in specific detail, sometimes uh, excessive detail it would seem to some of us, exactly how everything was to be built, the exact dimensions of every article of furniture. He then uh, endued certain craftsmen with his Holy Spirit who guided them in the creation of these things so that they would be precisely according to God's standard. And what we see in this is that God is a God of precision. He is a God who is concerned with detail. And so we often run afoul of that in our contemporary culture where we just want to accept uh, generalities and vague statements and just be happy and comfortable with that. If you doubt me, just watch and observe in our current political season or any political season and you see these very vague promises and statements of uh, future policy and change by every politician and you never hear any any details. Uh, it's interesting, this morning as I was getting ready, I just happened to flip on the news and somebody made the observation about a candidate and said, just ask any of their followers if they can name one thing that they've ever done or one specific policy they want to enact. They can't. That was then pointed out that could be applied to almost every candidate. And But that's where our American culture is. We would be, rather find comfort in some sort of vague generality than to be involved in details. But God is very specific. 
He is specific in how we should worship and what we should not do. He is specific about how we should live the Christian life. And he is very specific about salvation, that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. Once again, you have one of those exclusive claims uh, that salvation is only by faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And that when Jesus Christ came at the first advent, he fulfilled both specific prophecies in detail. He wasn't born somewhere around Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. He did not uh, die somewhere close to Passover. He was actually crucified precisely when the Paschal lambs were being crucified in the temple in precise fulfillment of typological detail. God is a God of precision. So when we study worship, we need to understand that there are absolutes, and within the framework of those absolutes, there is realm, there's a realm for human uh, creativity in response to God. And that's what we see in the Psalms, and that's what we see in, in music, is we, we don't see anywhere in Scripture specific revealed guidelines on the writing of psalms. What we see in examples like the Song of Moses, the Song of Miriam here, the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, and uh, the, the uh, uh, prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is we see models that give us a framework. They are not prescriptive in the sense that you have to follow these in precisely this order, but it gives a it gives these patterns, these models that we are to use. Uh, we dare not fall into the trap of emergent church postmodern thinking today. Well, that was good enough for them, but we have our own way of doing it. Uh, when they say that it was not prescriptive, what they mean is that we don't even have to pay attention to the pattern or the model. No, we pay attention. That's why we have so many, is because it gives us a pattern. It gives us a model. And even though we don't have specific revelation on how to write psalms or how to write hymns. We have these examples, but we also know that as God revealed the specific details and the blueprint for the temple that Solomon was to build, but we're not told what that revelation was. We're just told that he did, that I believe that God revealed certain uh, patterns and principles to Moses the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, as well as to David. And they exemplified these principles, but did not reveal those principles. So we have to think through what's going on uh, in the Scripture. And we have to recognize that singing is a very important and significant part of the, uh, the, the life of the believer, whether the Old Testament saint or the New Testament saint. Martin Luther, in a preface to a hymnal in 1544, just before he died, wrote, For God has cheered our hearts and minds through his dear Son, whom he gave for us to redeem us from sin, death, and the devil. He who believes this earnestly cannot be quiet about it. When we understand what God has done for us, then it is a natural and a good response to sing in praise to God. And this is exactly what we see 
in Exodus chapter 15, a song of praise and a song of celebration. Celebration is an aspect or dimension of worship for we are celebrating what God has done in history. So turn with me to the first verse in Exodus chapter 15. The first verse in Exodus 15, we read, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. A couple of things we ought to think about as we reflect upon that verse is that they didn't just sing it. Somebody had to first write it. Not only did someone have to write it, but they had to somehow distribute it because they did not have overhead projectors, LCD projectors, uh, anything. They did not have a mimeograph machine or Xerox machine. Somehow these two million people had to learn the content of this so that they could sing it corporately. And we believe that there was somewhere between two and three million Israelites standing there on the uh, east side of the Red Sea. And it was there that they gathered together and sang this in corporate response to God and His grace. So Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. Now there's another dimension to this as well, that it's divided according, as you read through it, it appears that there are basically three parts to this. You have a uh, an introductory section, or I actually say there are four parts. There's an introductory section, one through three. There's another section from four through ten. Then there's a, I guess there are three sections. The introductory section, the uh, section from four through ten, and then the third section, eleven through seventeen. And it appears that at the end of each of these sections that the women sang responsively to the men singing this main part because we come down to verse uh, 20 and we are told about Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron who uh, takes the timbrel. Some of your uh, translations have tambourine. We're not really sure what it is. Do not picture, you know, a couple of blondes up banging a tambourine without structure or guidance. This is not what's going on. That's how modern man expresses this because he has... Uh, a frame of reference out of uh, modernism and postmodernism that rejects structure. But there are many, many civilizations in history. You can think of the Japanese who use percussion instruments like a cymbal or a tambourine in a highly structured and formal manner. We come out of a culture where we're so where we're so used to seeing these kinds of things used in an unstructured, informal manner that that's the first thing that comes into your mind when you read this. But that's because you've been culturally shaped by what you've seen on television and maybe what you've experienced in other churches. This is a very formal, structured environment, and the women sing antiphonally as a chorus to what the men have been saying, and what they sing is recorded in verse 21. So this suggests as well that there is some sort of rehearsal and order to this, that they are not just singing spontaneously in some sort of ad hoc manner, but there is planning, there's organization, there is structure, and perhaps even rehearsal. 
And some people say, oh my, how can that be from the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's just spontaneous. Well, if God is a God of order, as the New Testament says, then you seem to have a problem with understanding the nature of the God of the Bible. Now, the psalm begins with a first-person singular pronoun because this reflects the writer himself. This is common in numerous hymns in the Scripture, but just because it begins with I doesn't mean it is a, a self-absorbed reflection upon someone's experience with God. There are numerous hymns. For example, uh, Deborah's hymn, Judges 5.1, uh, the hymn that is a meditation on the Davidic Covenant, Psalm 89.1, Psalm 101.1, who all these, which all began with I, because the writer is expressing his uh, praise to God and as you read through the words of the hymn, you realize that even though it begins with a first-person pronoun, it is not me-centered or subjectively centered. It is centered on what God has done objectively in history. So it begins, I will sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The emphasis immediately shifts to God. I will sing to Yahweh because, using a causal form in the Hebrew, expressing the reason or the basis for singing, because God has triumphed gloriously. In fact, the Hebrew is a phrase of, of emphasis, a phrase, uh, I mean, a phrase that, uh, where you have a repetition of the verb, and a structure that emphasizes the certainty or the or is used for emphasis that uh, and it's actually it's a repetition of the same of the same verb and for he has uh, gloriously he is gloriously exalted would be a way to put it he is as gloried gloriously uh, the horse and its rider he is thrown into the sea this tells us what God did, it is specific that he, he, it's not just he won the battle, but he threw the, the, the cavalry of, of uh, Pharaoh into the water and, was, and he was drowned. So this opening sentence is a summary, but it, nevertheless it has specificity to it. When we get into verse 2 and verse 3, we see that he adds uh, a Admission or confession, as it's stated in the technical literature, it is a more detailed expression of what has happened. That it begins again with God as the focus. The Lord, Yahweh, is my strength and song. And the uh, italicized is there indicates that that's not present. It's understood in the Hebrew. The Lord, my strength and Song. God is our strength and he is the cause of our rejoicing by song. He has become my salvation. Now there are some who sing this, and I've heard it sung, where the idea of salvation is thought to refer to personal justification. This is not a song about justification, salvation. It's a song about the physical military deliverance of the Israelites as they have escaped from the oppression of the 
Egyptians. God has delivered them from slavery. Of course, that is a becomes a picture later on in Scripture of our salvation. For just as the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, every human being is enslaved in sin. And just as it was necessary for God to work on his own without any human effort to redeem or to purchase or to deliver Israel from slavery, God and God alone has performed what is necessary to deliver us from slavery to sin. And that occurred at the cross. So this is a type or a picture of what God does for everybody in salvation at the cross. And when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we realize that deliverance. It is a deliverance from the penalty of sin as we are justified and regenerated. So the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise Him. My Father's God, I will exalt Him. It's a statement of purpose for the song that its, its purpose is to extol God. It's to talk about who God is and what God has done. And then in verse 3, it focuses that on the fact that the Lord is a man of war. That is a literal translation. However, the phrase man of war really should be understood as a, uh, an idiom for warrior. It's not saying God is a man. It is saying he is a man of war. He is a warrior, that God is not a pacifist. We live in a world today where there are a certain number of people and uh, there have been a certain number of Christians down through the ages who think that, that if you are a Christian, then your standards should be pacifism. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, that God himself is a warrior and God does battle against evil forces for as long as we're living in the angelic conflict, as long as evil exists, then it will be necessary for good men to fight in wars in order to be delivered from tyranny. And God exemplifies that as he has delivered the Israelites from the tyranny of the Egyptians. Pacifism, as a principle, has no place in the Christian life. God himself has been embroiled in a war for thousands of years, and the end is not yet in sight. Then we come to the next major division in verse 4. Focuses again on what God has done and the details are more fully developed. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. I want you to notice the words that are used here. You have sea, you have red sea, you have uh, the depths and the bottom uh, reinforcing what God has done, but you also see a variety of words that are used in order to bring that home. Uh, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has cast into the sea. Notice there's also a shift from you to he. He's cast into the sea. His chosen captains, that is, the the only reason that's capitalized H there was because it begins a new line in the poetry, but it's his chosen captains are the captains of the his refers to Pharaoh. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Just as a side note here, some of you may have seen the fact that there is an email going around 
I've had it hit my inbox about maybe five or six times in the last month that purports to claim that uh, there's been archaeological discovery of various chariots at the bottom of the Sea of Aqaba, which is the easternmost branch of the Red Sea, and this indicates that Mount Sinai is actually over in Egypt. There's also a book out called Chariots of Gold, and there have been some other things that have shown up here and there on television about this. This is all based on work by a man named Wyatt, who was uh, actually, there's a couple of books out showing that most, if not all, of his claims are fraudulent. And there's a number of excellent articles that have come out in Bible and Spade Journal, which is a conservative biblical archaeology journal written by men who believe the numbers and details of the text to show that it is impossible for, their, for Mount Sinai to have been over on the uh, over in Saudi Arabia, because the details in the text give us the exact number of days that the Israelites marched from Sinai to Kadesh, and unless you were trying to get two million people to run through the desert and cover 60 miles, 55 to 60 miles a day, it's impossible to get from. Uh, this area over in Saudi Arabia up to uh, Kadesh in the amount of time the Jews did. And when you're thinking about trying to get, uh, let's just say, about 600,000 women up and ready and on the march, and you probably had (laughs) 200,000 of them are trying to get the babies lined up, it's not very conceivable that they moved any faster than your average caravan at that time, which was only about 6 to 10 miles a day on a good day. So that gives us a pretty good parameter. Anyway, I've seen that so much lately that I thought I needed to just add that. You can email me. I'll send you the links to several articles that deal with this. So they did. The army of Pharaoh was destroyed, but it never says Pharaoh was destroyed. That's just another side note. Everybody wants to think Pharaoh went under, but you have Pharaoh, 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 up until the, the, up until the actual pursuit into the uh, valley between the waters. And at that point, the term shifts to Pharaoh's chariots and Pharaoh's horsemen. You no longer have the term Pharaoh used at that point. So... Um, that explains why there's no evidence from Egyptian history of a pharaoh at this time uh, dying prematurely. Just another note that people need to pay attention to the text and not uh, uh, not pay attention to uh, things that are just generally stated in Sunday school. Then we come to verse 6. Verse 6 focuses on God. Your right hand, O Lord. Now, this is an anthropomorphism. Uh, God does not have a right or left hand. He doesn't have eyes or a nose. But this speaks of something in his power, his omnipotence. Hand always stands for the ability of God to do something. For it is with our hands that we accomplish things. And the hand is a picture of his omnipotence. So the... Words of the song focus on the power, the omnipotence of God, and the point I'm making is that at core of at the core of the good psalms and good hymns of Scripture, there is reflection upon the essence of God. Your right hand, O Lord, has become uh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, had, has dashed the enemy in pieces, and in the greatness of your excellence, and the greatness of your excellence should be understood to be the abundance of your 
excellence. It emphasizes what will be emphasized again in verse 11 and 12, and that is the immensity of God, the immensity of God, that he is beyond everything in the creation. The greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you, and you sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Notice the historical interpretation here that the Pharaoh is viewed as the one who rose against God, that man, apart from God, is viewed as a rebel. Uh, then we get into verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. This is, again, an anthropomorphism. God does not have a nose. He does not have nostrils, but it is a dramatic and a picturesque way of expressing the power of the wind. The flowing waters stood up like a heap, and the deeps were congealed into the heart of the sea. Interesting word there, picturing how the waters just seemed to solidify on each side, for it would have taken some time for uh, two to three uh, million Jews to have made their way between the, through the trough and between the walls of water. The enemy is... Ideas were pictured in verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand will destroy them. So the arrogance of the enemy is to think that he can destroy God's plan, and yet God responded by covering them with the sea. Verse 11, he begins to reflect upon who God is. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? We studied this the other night in our study of Hebrews, that this phrase is used uniquely in covenant context, primarily here in relation to their deliverance just before giving the Mosaic Covenant. And again, David and Solomon use this terminology in relation to the Davidic uh, Covenant. Who is like you, glorious, actually majestic, uh, again, emphasizing the more the spatial dimension than the weightiness of glory is the distinction in the Hebrew words. Uh, majestic emphasizes his immensity in holiness, his uniqueness, fearful in praises. And that's an awkward way to translate that. Uh, it should be uh, understood to be honored in praises. That Hebrew word, yareh, meaning fear, that is often translated uh, are associated with worship. We worship God in reverence and fear because of his, of his power. The word majestic is that idea of being magnified, being glorified. It is not the word kavad, which is the normal word for glory. It pictures the power, majesty of God in terms of size and not weight. You stretched out your right hand. Again, a picture of power. His omnipotence, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy, the Hebrew word chesed should be translated more like loyal, faithful love or his loving kindness, that this is what is uh, behind God's work. He is mercy. You have led the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength. Again, power to your holy habitation. I begins to think, Forward in terms of the fact that God acted one way historically and that has implications and application for what's going to happen in the future. Because God did something in the past, we know he can act a certain way in our lives in, in the future. Uh, verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. What he means by the people here is the Gentiles, the Canaanites. We're headed to the land 
where the Canaanites uh, exist, and they will hear of this, and they will be afraid. And they forgot that. I pointed out as we were in our observance of communion this morning how quickly we forget. This generation forgot about what God did at the Red Sea by the time they got to Kadesh Barnea and the spies went into the land and said, Oh, we can't do this. They've got walled cities and there's so many of them and they're giants in the land. We can't possibly do this. And what they didn't realize was that they, the, 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 the giants were more afraid of them than they were of the giants. In fact, when they finally did enter the land under Joshua, that's the first thing Rahab told them, is they've known about your coming for 40 years, and they've been scared to death because they know that God is going to use you to destroy them. So there's this focus in verses 14 through 16 on a future application of the principle already uh, already uh, explained in the hymn in the first 13 verses. Verse 17, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, where your hands have established. So this is looking forward to a permanent dwelling of God in their midst. And then the eventual manifestation and presence of God, verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So this gives us a sample of the kind of lyrics that should be in a song. It is theocentric. It is God-centered. It focuses on his character. And then there is even application of what he has done in the past to what he can do in the future. The sense is that it is a reminder to people of who God is, what he has done, so that in future similar events they can have strength and confidence in God. As we see the conclusion of this section in verses 19 and 20, there is a historical note added about how God did destroy, Pharaoh, uh, destroy the horses of Pharaoh, went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. Again, note, it doesn't say that Pharaoh did. It says the horses of Pharaoh and his horsemen went into the sea, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Now, verses 20 and 21, as I pointed out earlier, give for us a, a recognition of a level of complexity in this hymn, that there was some antiphonal singing. The men sang one part, the women sang another part that was like a summary or a chorus. We hear Miriam the prophetess. And this is a very interesting word. We normally think of a prophet as being someone who is uh, prosecuting the law of God in the Old Testament. We think of men like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, men of that stature. But there are several women that are mentioned in Scripture as uh, prophetesses. And it's an interesting use of the word because in several cases, both with the case of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, where there's an association with a hymn, uh, there's a couple of, there's the mention of a couple of others, for example, Huldah in 2 Kings 22.14, Noadiah in Nehemiah 6.14, uh, Isaiah's wife in Isaiah 8.3, Anna in Luke 2.36, Philip's daughters, there's no mention of singing, but there's no mention of what they did either. And there is this somewhat interesting verse in 1 Chronicles 25.3 that is associated with music 
and the singing of hymns. Of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, Zerai, uh, Jeshiah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six, six of his sons, under the direction of their father, once again, they're a choral group, under the direction of their father, who, notice, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and praise to the Lord. A verse that people just blow past in the scriptures, but in this verse, it, the word prophecy is associated with uh, the writing and singing of hymns. And so I think that when we look at Miriam the prophetess and, and we look at Deborah the prophetess in Judges 5 where we have a hymn that we need to think that perhaps this concept of, of prophesying isn't what we think of in terms of either revelatory or foretelling, but it has an, another meaning which is related to the singing of praise to God in the Old Testament. We praise God because of who He is and what He did for us in redemption. He paid the price for our sins so that singing and worship as a body of believers comes together is a response, a reflection of who God is and what He did. That means that when we sing the kinds of words that we sing, the content of what we do in worship always needs to drive our attention back to God, 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 and the cross. It is always a focus, even if it starts with man and his experience, as the Psalms do at times, it always ends up glorifying God because it's all about him and not about us. We'll continue our study on hymns in the Old Testament as that relates to worship next time. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be challenged by your word this morning to think perhaps more deeply and profoundly about what it means to sing, why we sing, what we sing, that we may come to understand this in a, in a manner that uh, strengthens our own spiritual life and our own personal worship and adoration of you for who you are and what you've done. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they are here this morning without hope and without uh, any possibility of saving themselves. But you have done it all. And that all that is necessary for eternal salvation, for real life and real meaning, is to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Salvation is not based on who we are, what we do. It's based on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If anyone is here this morning and they are without eternal life, all they need to do is trust in Jesus Christ. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us in terms of our own application of these principles we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.